0: No retreats, no regrets, no reserves. These colors don't run, they reload. That's what Billy Graham said on September 14th. No, that's, uh, that's not what he said. Um, but my name's Matt and this are, this are, we are The Speech Guys. And we are back for episode number 17. That's right, we've made it 17 episodes. Many of you doubted us. Actually, none of you doubted us. Well, some of you might have if you listened to us before we got really good. Um, But we are 17 episodes in. Episode number 3 in the Speeches on God series. And we're hearing from... A, uh, a man who changed America in a lot of ways uh, but perhaps not in the uh, the political way that we've kind of covered um, for most of our speeches and his name is Billy Graham and he gave a speech on September 14th 2001 in the aftermath of September 11th um, on the national um, basically the national memorial service for that day um, so yeah, this speech obviously a momentous part of American history, and um, or the, the event certainly was, and this speech kind of addressed, uh, I think, uh, pretty aptly the, the, the soul of the nation. Um, so, without further ado, here's the speech. How was that, Mike? When you see the road from
1: every direction it will give you eyes, give you hope, it'll give you perspective. I've been back and forth,
0: and yeah I had my crashes. Now I've seen the road it goes every right, one
2: one two three This is this, this is, is Thursday, Thursday. <laughs> We've recorded the intro, so I think that just sort of organically lead in.
3: But do it organically. (laughs) (laughs) Super
2: organically. Just start. Start. Start being
0: organic. Why don't you? Um, Well, how about this? I'll. um, I'm going to read the longer of the two. I think that might kind of create a little more fodder. So here we go. Uh, From the words of Billy Graham on September 14th, 2001. First, we are reminded of the mystery and reality of evil. I've been asked hundreds of times why God allows tragedy and suffering. I have to confess that I don't know the answer. I have to accept by faith that God is sovereign, and that he is a God of love and mercy and compassion in the midst of suffering. The Bible says God is not the author of evil. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, The Bible talks about the mystery of iniquity. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure. The lesson of this event is not only about the mystery of iniquity and evil, but second, it's a lesson about our need for each other. What an example New York and Washington have been to the world these past few days. None of us will forget the pictures of our courageous firefighters and police or the hundreds of people standing patiently in line to donate blood. A tragedy like this could have torn our country apart, but instead it has united us. So those perpetrators who took this on to tear us apart, it has worked the other way. It has backlashed. We are more united than ever before. I think this was exemplified in a very moving way when the members of our Congress stood shoulder to shoulder and sang God bless America. Finally, difficult as it may be for us to see right now, this event can give us a message of hope. Hope for the present and hope for the future. Yes, there is hope. There is hope for the present because the stage, I believe, has already been set for a new spirit in our nation. We desperately need a spiritual renewal in this country, and God has told us in his word, time after time, that we need to repent of our sins and return to him, and he will bless us in a new way. There is also hope for the future because of God's promises. As a Christian, I have hope, not just for this life, but for heaven and the life to come. And many of those people who died this past week are in heaven now, They wouldn't want to come back. It's so glorious and wonderful. This hope, this is the hope for all of us who put our faith in God. I pray that you will have this hope in your heart. So, gentlemen, um, hearing the words of Billy Graham, what, uh, anything in particular stick out?
3: I think for me, I guess the part that stuck out the most at least of what you read there was just the first um the first sentence uh when he said first were reminded of the mystery and reality of evil um just i think that is the i mean that's just such a difficult question to like reconcile with you know you got this christian preacher up there after this really bad thing happened um so i think that i guess just that he acknowledged that. And I, I mean, I felt like I liked his, his saying, how, he, how he's somewhat genuine. And he said, I have to confess that I do not know the answer, but, um, yeah, I think just the, just that he acknowledged just how terrible the thing it really was that happened. Um, it wasn't just, you know, a feel good speech about let's come together and, you know, overcome this adversity, that type of thing. Like he, he acknowledged what actually happened. And I, that, I guess kind of stuck out a little bit to me.
2: Yeah, I thought that it sort of had a tone, or tone's not quite the right, I'm just the message itself that was sort of similar to what we talked about last episode with the book of Job, which I think also just most um, sincerely or most, I guess, powerfully captures, like, I think the essence and most like real heart of Christianity that uh, with respect to suffering where, you know, people definitely attempt in Christianity and, but really a lot of religions, right? They try to explain suffering away yet. Billy Graham just sort of focuses in on the realities of it that yes, evil exists I don't have an explanation for it. But despite this, I know that God is love. I know God's merciful. I know that he's compassionate. And that's, you know, even rereading that and listening to him speak it, was, you know, it felt it felt real. It felt... It felt moving, right? But, you know, imagine a preacher who would attempt to explain it away in sort of like the way Job's friends were attempting to and other people today be like, oh, gosh, that, that sounds fake or it's just unbelievable or et cetera, et cetera. Landon wrote on his comments here, is hope uniquely Christian? That's a good question. I don't know if I've necessarily thought of that.
1: I just read about oh. it in a book, actually.
2: Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the premise was that, uh, mm-hmm. at least in the example that was given, um, in a couple other languages, it wasn't Greek or Latin, but um, it was an Eastern language, uh, and there was no easy translation for the word hope, and that was. The support for that was given through a couple, a couple of languages. It was more than one, but it then went on to kind of describe the, like the state of humanity and the hope that one would have uh, about the future or a better place or like, um, yeah, like having a reality in the future that's better than things in the present uh, kind of didn't come around until Christianity, and that has obviously, you know, um, become widespread in many cultures at this point, and kind of, um, you wouldn't be able to tell or parse it out from Christianity at this point.
2: Yeah, as I sort of think through a little bit more so than i have in the past on the nature of hope you know it's obviously it's not expectation expectation is where you just expect good things to happen or expect things to happen a certain way and your your own agency isn't really necessarily involved which is obviously unrealistic um and not useful um but it's also not just—it's not like fairy-eyed um, hope or hopes. I you know, that can't use the same word. It's not fairy-eyed longing for some sort of happy future without an explanation either. It's—I guess I sort of think of it as a, an an appropriate marriage in the realization between your own agency, but also that. Things are ultimately going to happen in some sort of way which providence deems right. So
0: I, I guess you use the term providence. Like what? What do you mean by that? And like what? Because um, I feel like the word providence is is also a uniquely like Christian word. So if you're gonna define hope in like a uniquely Christian context, it seems like you're kind of saying that it's it's like a you know, because, I mean, the root of providence is provide, like, so, like, the Lord provides, you know, X, you know, so, like, I don't know. It just seems like it, it's a little bit of a circular yeah. kind of circular definition, you know?
2: Right, sure. Yeah, I don't know. Because,
0: <laughs> yeah, a, I mean, and, but I think you're, I mean, you're definitely on to, like, there's a, it's not pure longing I mean, there, but there is longing, you know, and it's not pure expectation, but there is expectation.
2: Yeah, it's, um, I guess, you know, to kind of put a finer point on it, it gets at the question of what is the right disposition to have towards the future as a human, right? Okay, yeah, so you have expectation, that's one option. Uh, you can say perhaps explicitly Christian hope is another option, um despair some of these can obviously overlap probably um presumption um yeah and so it's like i think hope yeah so maybe restate what i was trying to say it's a proper outlook towards the future most effectively marries your own agency with Whatever that being is, which exists beyond the boundaries of our universe, which it doesn't even necessarily have to be a theistic or deist um, reality, because it's the reality that you can't control everything, (laughs) whether or not God exists. You can't control everything, period. And there's still is still a relationship to have towards that.
1: I think it overrides the feeling of despair enough to be present um, in the moment. Like, you shouldn't be so concerned and living in the future that you're, you know, assuming too much about the day or the place or the time of where you're at at the moment. But at least hope doesn't give you the despair for the future. Um,
2: what did you guys, uh, know about Billy Graham before, for this talk? What was your impressions of him?
0: Honestly, I didn't know a ton. Um, other than just, he seemed to be kind of the preeminent, um, I don't know, I guess like kind of the preeminent Christian voice of, I guess the better half of the 20th century for the U.S. Um, maybe for the world, I don't know, I suppose, particularly the U.S. And, I mean, just in, like, Catholic circles, like, sure, there are certain, like, better-known priests or or religious or, you know, people who give speeches and whatnot who, who maybe, like, folks will know, but I know, like, at least in Protestant circles, like, that's that's more of a thing, like, oh, what pastors do you like? You know, like, that's a question huh. that gets thrown around more. Um and, I, like, literally, he's the only, like, pastor that I know. You know, like, if I were to, which, I mean, I wasn't, like, it's not like I would heard a bunch of his sermons or anything, but, like, um, like if I were to name, like, a pastor, like a, you know, besides, like, the ones who are, I guess, more, like, uh, I know there's, like, Joel Osteen, who's kind of, he seems to be more, like, notorious than he is, like. Mm. Yeah. Uh, like a truly moving, like force in the spirituality of America, Um, perhaps wrongly, you know, it's a wrong interpretation of him, but I don't know, that's kind of what I've gotten, Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he was the only one I could have, like, told you, like, oh yeah, that's Billy Graham, I knew he was, uh, I mean, I'm from the Chicago suburbs, so, like, I was familiar with his connections with Wheaton uh, College, and I guess maybe that's part of, part of it, but.
2: Wheaton, Landon, Landon knows all about that.
1: I'm married to a mm-hmm. Wheaton College grad, exactly.
2: Yep, yep, little shout out there. Also, yeah, shout out, I- I've
1: been to the Billy Graham Museum in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, so family vacation a couple years ago, um, basically where he grew up and kind of, a, a, yeah, all of his library and uh, childhood home and all that good stuff, or a pretty cool museum right on the outskirts of Charlotte.
2: Were those the pictures you were just cycling through on your screen? Yeah, I threw some up oh. just for the... Okay, nice. Oh, I nice. like that. Good touch. Good touch. Um, one picture we saw was Landon standing with the life sized wax statue of Billy Graham. <laughs> that was not up there, folks.
3: I think, I mean, I had heard of Billy Graham, and he was... I, And correct me if I'm wrong, because I did not do very, I really didn't look into him particularly preparing for the speech so much as I guess the speech itself and some other stuff. But um, he kind of did like the traveling preaching, correct? Like the, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but like he would kind of travel and give sermons in different places. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm pretty confident. Yeah, so we'll go with that. So like I feel like he's also somewhat uniquely positioned, like kind of like Matt said, he just seems to be very well known. Um, but like at least giving this speech, which I miss or this sermon or whatever it was, uh, but like he seems to be kind of uniquely positioned maybe to do a good job at it because he's not like, Oh, this is the pastor that everybody knows. And he's the pastor of this church. And he's like kind of localized to, you know, uh, whatever town the church is in. It's just because of, I feel like at least the, the kind of that traveling past, um, I feel like that kind of makes maybe makes it a little bit more of a he's at least the the feel is he's kind of a preacher to everyone, if that makes sense, um, which uh, seems to make him kind of uniquely suited just because of his how well known he is combined with like that flavor or that um, just that uh, kind of his past, how he had done that. I feel like that kind of makes him a good person to, to give this speech. Yeah, a little
1: background. I mean, even uh, as he went to various Bible colleges, he hit up, he was at Bob Hope, Florida Bible College, ended up getting a degree from Wheaton, graduated in 43, so right during World War II, um, was a full time pastor at a church, and then took to the radio, uh, moved out west to California, and ended up basically, yeah, taking his show on the road, kind of doing small stump sermons, so to speak, and just as he, uh, you know, connected with folks from from Radio Connections and went about the country, um, had larger and larger events, um, basically getting to a series where he'd Stay in New York City or or London, it ended up being international and drawing, you know, thousands and thousands of people who, you know, I think especially during the 50s and 60s, the cultural sexual revolution, you know, just going to events. uh, I think he was able to draw in, you know, at least curious people, if not Christian and from an early age, he had many professors just say like you have a gift for orating and speaking that um you know could compel unbelievers to listen or to like hear the word in the in the manner and in, in even which you deliver it and he very much leaned into that and um didn't stick around and be a pastor um at one singular church for too long, but went to the masses and, you know, called for them to come to Jesus. And that just built on itself over at least the initial couple of decades until he became um, an icon, so to speak, of American Protestantism.
0: I think the term icon seems to be. Yeah, I guess that, that might be a good summary of like what my interpretation of him was. And just the when I did read a little bit of background, he seemed um, uniquely clean in that like I guess there were a number of like similar types of, of pastors that ended up having like kind of bad reps or like were tied up in scandals. Um, one note is that I guess he made like he never allowed himself to be seen in public with any woman um even his own daughters without his wife present <laughs> which like is a really i don't know just really I thought that, that was a really interesting like uh step he took you know just to make sure he uh yeah just to like keep himself as clean as possible and just knowing like the uh the risk and and damage a scandal could cause you know even if it wasn't true
1: right yeah, he. It was called the Billy Graham rule for many decades. I think now it's the Mike Pence rule. Um, Mike Pence kind of popularized it, and I think often gets scoffed at it. But um, you know, at a time when like the Me Too movement is roaring, like it's
0: seems like a good rule. Kind to of me. <laughs>
1: one of the main answers to it. Like if you're gonna, and it. It was interesting. The reason that he did it. Um, it was pretty early on as they started to do bigger and bigger events and you needed a team, um, they sat down and codified some, I would say like rules for just making sure that the way that they dealt with this, you know, pretty entrepreneurial mechanism to do these events, um... You know, they they made some rules around how and when they would ever ask for money, for communion and, or not communion, um, offerings. Um, He codified just some rules on like, you know, personal behaviors. I think the the main one that came out would be this rule we're talking about. But another interesting one that I caught was uh, rules for, quantifying the number of people in attendance that they would never comment on any number of people and if if other unbiased reporters wanted to say how many people were there let other people say that but they would never like boast or try to document
2: that sounds that sounds believable, Landon. Except only minutes ago, I was watching a 1973 clip from Johnny Carson when Billy Graham was on, and he commented on how many people were at the event—one million plus or minus.
1: So he broke his own <laughs> rules, but yeah, they yeah. that that was uh, uh, yeah, he he. I think I heard him reflect. He did did think that he was perhaps like too political and or showy the 70s probably fit there he got he was an advisor and kind of a close friend to almost every president from truman to uh obama um
0: remember seeing a list and i think the only president not on there was bill clinton which which i thought was kind of funny but well, for whatever
2: it's worth, he did, although it was unsighted on Wikipedia, um, apparently said he thought Bill Clinton was spiritual, though. So he had one positive thing to All say right. about Brooklyn Clinton, for whatever that's worth. Um, yeah, you know, it's like how he ended up in this position to give this speech. You know, I my sort of vibe I got from... Just what I already knew about him, which was, you know, on par with uh, Matt or Ross, um, that the Catholics in the group just clarified that. <laughs> Whoa, why are they grouped together? Um, was that he? He really seemed to have this really um, effective. Um, marriage i've used that again without reference to actual marriage effective marriage between you know his general like um message right which is which is hard of it you know he had a good solid christian message which was on point um his attractive compelling style like we were talking about but i think the thing that really set him apart well, and his energy, which I was reading about in the book Unbroken recently with reference, was that he knew how to be... How how did I phrase it here in my notes? Um, <laughs> uh, forthright with his mistake. really knew how to toe the line politically enough to be relevant, but not enough to be partisan. Um, he has, I think, a quote which I think explains that a little bit more. It was in re- in reference to whether he was going to he okay in two thousand seven. Graham re- explained his refusal to join the Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority in nineteen seventy nine. I've heard that word. I don't I don't know exactly what that is. Something right leaning, but. You'll get what I'm getting at with this quote that Billy Graham said in response. He said, I'm for morality, but morality goes beyond sex to human freedom and social justice. We as clergy know so very little to speak with authority on the Panama Canal or superiority of armaments. Evangelists cannot be closely identified with any particular party or person. We have to stand in the middle in order to preach to all people right and left. I haven't been faithful to my own advice in the past. I will be in the future. So I guess two interesting points, which are relevant to what I was trying to say there, is one, he's recognizing that, yeah, you know, there is obviously moral weight to political issues, in this case, the Panama Canal, and I guess how deep they should uh, dig it. But... Um, <laughs> or armament questions like yeah those are legitimate issues but they're so complex that it's not the foray of christian ministry to comment on those um and then he also make. I want to come back to that in a second. Then he also says, which I like, I haven't been faithful to my own advice in the past. I will be in the future. So also very attractive there is, yeah, acknowledging his own mistakes because someone's, of course, going to look at that and say, oh, gosh, how could – that's not the same as what he did in the past, and he acknowledges that. And then, you know, he makes that promise that no, I'm going to be better, better in the future. Like that's, like that's not just effective. I mean that's obviously just – just great that's uh you know great to see that and to finish up this thought here you know it makes me honestly think of like covid and how (laughs) for better or for worse um worse in my opinion is although not always the case of course is that conservatives to put really 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 simply are anti-covid you know as silly as that is when it it would seem like Billy Graham would offer a tremendous amount of illumination on this issue and bringing people together, because I feel maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like he might say something like, "What the heck do I know about COVID? I'm not going to make any sort of comment about this because, you know, I'm a I'm a minister. That's not that's not my foray. So
1: yeah, he was he was labeled of like, who was he, what functionally did he do, boiled down to eight things. Preacher, for one, he just preached the gospel, therefore ended up a bit of an icon. The fact that he was a Southerner had a lot to do with some of how and who he influenced an entrepreneur in the way that he um, just built, uh, perhaps his brand, The one I'd like to hone in on was like Bridge Builder. He had a nickname, he was the great legitimator. Um, And he kind of legitimized both sides. It said like he legitimized social and racial movements Mm -hmm. from the left to the right. And further because he Acted as a spiritual mentor to pretty much every president. Um, this this was not always a positive label that he had, but I'm recalling this off the top of my head. He kind of legitimized wars and you know whatever negative connotations would come along with like the worst aspects of any one president. Um, but yeah, I think it was wars and something else, um, but, yeah, it was pretty early on, in yeah, the, I would say whatever controversy or just, like, how did he fall out on any, like, cultural, social issue given his massive influence for, you know, 70 years in America, um, the, his relationship with Martin Luther King seems to have been pretty good, or uh, at points they weren't seen together or in lockstep, kind of in like the later as the later term of MLK's life. Uh, but came out even in one of his early rallies in Chattanooga in '53. Broke down all of the segregated barriers at the rally and refused to ever like preach to a segregated audience, um, mm. even at a time when, you know, that would have been ten or so years before the civil rights movement got going. Um, him Why and MLK were
2: they potentially not in lockstep at the end of MLK's, MLK's life?
1: They just they so they did several events together. They preached together in the late fifties in New York City. And then they they went together to South America. Um, but then as it started to get heating up, uh, Graham did not go to the I Have a Dream speech March on Washington.
2: Huh.
1: Um, and given it was like such a huge moment, his presence was kind of like, where's Billy Graham? Why isn't he here? Um, apparently, they had some deal. Like, Billy, stay doing your revivals, don't come out on the streets, go ahead of me, kind of like spread your message. If you come out of the streets, you're gonna delegitimize yourself among most of your base. Um, That's his story. King, most folks kind of agreed with it. Now it's kind of like King would have never said that and a bit of a he said, she, he said kind of thing.
0: so, so no one really knows, like, to what degree. <laughs> no one really knows to what degree, like, King and or Billy Graham, like, came to any sort of agreement on the MLK or the "I Have a Dream" speech.
1: He had, I think, he had one. He was put on record as having a comment towards after the speech. I think he said like probably won't be until we all get to heaven that like white children and black children in Alabama are like standing next to each other he didn't allow segregation but he also somewhat off the very, cuff acknowledged very that, diplomatic on right. Billy
2: Graham's part <laughs> right
1: he's like I, I've been to this South. I don't I don't see that happening in my lifetime um and it was probably didn't age well um sure
3: that's yeah I I think I mean like just the figure of Billy Graham being there to give the speech but like I think it's interesting it's like to fast forward now to what was it September 14th I think we said <clears throat> like a couple days after 9-11 like he just seemed again like kind of uniquely positioned um, and I feel like it's one of those things like people like we all have those people that you just kind of listen to in your life you know what I mean whether it's maybe when you're a 19-year-old college freshman, sophomore, whatever you are at 19, like there's that senior that you just, everything they say seems right. and Or, you know, maybe it's whatever. I'm I'm sure everybody's kind of picturing what I'm talking about. So, like, it seems like we all have this tendency to, like, this is somebody I trust, this is who I'm going to listen to. Um, And I was just looking up a little bit because I feel like today I couldn't think of somebody that would – be able to do that for i guess america if that makes sense um at at, at that broad of a scale and so i was just thinking about or looking at some stuff and i was like yeah i mean we've all heard of billy graham but like i mean we're way too young to have really heard billy graham if that makes sense like so like i mean 9 11 at this point was 20 years ago so um just kind of like trying to put in perspective of like he was probably a bigger name in a way then than now just because of age but also like I so I just looked up I think oh, these were some Gallup polls so um yeah I'm assuming they're at least relatively relatively accurate but in 2001 well I was like 82% of the United States identified as Christian and over 90% identified at least as some religious group so wait so in 2001 mm, according to uh, 80% according to 82% I believe I what a number I saw and the people that identified as nuns or, or not believe in any group was like 8%. So I just did the math. And so that means must be 92% do something. So like the idea of bringing in a religious figure, I feel like even then compared to today, like would have kind of had a little bit more of that. You're going to trust this person. If that makes sense, just because so many more people would have probably, um, been maybe in line with some of the messages he had preached prior to this. Um, and then kind of like everything we've said, he's been around a long time. He's super well known. He almost even pl- like did like the, and I'm not trying to say this was ungenuine, but like he did like the grandfather part in the speech somewhere. He says, you know, I'm an old man now. So like, just like even reading this speech, he's kind of like setting himself up as this kind of old grandfather figure just to kind of give some, give some help at this tough time. Um, so I just kind of thought that was interesting too. Like if we have... Like, if he was able to, like, if something like this happened today, and I think somebody posted this in the outline um, as well, but, like, would we even have a figure like this to give a speech, to? you know, which, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting thought, I think. who would Who would we pick to do it?
2: Yeah, you know, I was sort of thinking through on this point. You know, among Catholics, I think the closest thing to... Billy Graham would be Bishop Robert Barron and I'm sort of like in my mind comparing and contrasting their styles and you know if Bishop Barron like preached like this well or any any person preached like this in the United States they like it wouldn't it wouldn't land right so part of what makes what made Billy Graham so successful in in a sense sort of a worldly way was like it was partly him but it was also the united states and the social disposition in the united states where for whatever reasons we wanted to hear a message right and whereas like bishop Barron's style you know it's not that billy graham is like sounds dumb or anything like that but it's it doesn't have like that intellectual rigor, which makes Bishop Barron so successful. That's like the the thing that's really, um, you know, just yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Just sort of leave it with that. I I just also googled um, most famous Protestant plath pastors, and I got uh, a list of the twenty five most influential pastors of the past twenty five years, which is a little bit of a bigger scope than what I wanted but so billy graham's number one but the only other well i recognize rick warren i feel like he's the most he's the closest thing to a modern day billy graham where he has a pretty broad diverse audience i feel like he's the purpose-driven life guy um but yeah so that sort of comments on ross's question what's could he make this What was it could make speech that who would give the speech today
0: yeah. One one thing about that, and especially with your Bishop Baron, I mean, not that, like, so I think Bishop Baron would, I don't think he would go the intellectual rigor route, um, but I do see that as his strength. So I don't know if, like, this would necessarily, I mean, I would love to hear from him, but, like, I don't know if this would be his wheelhouse per se. You know, like, I'm sure he could adapt things, but in the heart of, or in the midst of, like, an immense tragedy like intellectual rigor isn't usually what people are in the mood for. Um, uh, but I think like Billy Graham does a really great job in this speech of like hitting it with some sort of intellectual respect for like the complexity of like the, the nature of evil and, um, whatnot. But yeah, I think his message is also like simple and hopeful enough that it's, uh, yeah, it does, uh, It's meaningful for everyone, right? It's not just like a a disposition is, you know, because you can explain painful things away as much as you want, but, like, that doesn't hurt or that doesn't help. You know, you need to kind of pierce through it and whatever. But I'm interested to hear from you, Landon, on, like, who you think would be in a, a position to give this nowadays.
1: Um, I, uh... How'd you what'd you just say about Bishop Barron, Mike? You said that if he gave it it wouldn't he couldn't say it like Billy said it. What was it?
2: Well, I was more just speaking in general comparisons between their preaching style and less like how Bishop Barron would give the speech. Um I think what you're getting at is I said that if Bishop Barron gave this speech, like just the simple Fieriness of, well, it's, this speech isn't really super fiery, though. But
1: no, yeah, but all, all of his others I are. I think, yeah, I think there's yeah, a certain
0: directness. Style. Maybe. Direct might be the yeah. right word, if not fiery. But he, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Direct.
2: Yeah, that's good.
1: Right. Bishop Barron's not going to probably end his sermon like, now is the time to make your decision. Like, today's the day. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Is that what you mean? Um, I'll try to answer your question Ross I had to like just google a little bit myself um, on kind of the people who believe in God and the percentages the one I was able to Gallup had yeah it did kind of fall off after 2001 um, church membership among US adults basically the same from 1940 to almost 2000 like 70, huh. 70% membership that can mean a lot of things but like if you believe of course you'd want to be a part of a community so like pretty it's almost flat a couple bumps and yeah after 2000 kind of creeps down to 2010 goes to 60 and now as of last year church membership fell below 50% at 47% we've lost 23% of America wow that's crazy to church membership since Two thousand.
2: I am honestly surprised it's that high, though. But obviously, that's so distorted. It must be like eighty percent in the Midwest and like negative thirty on the <laughs> coast. <laughs> They're burning churches. <laughs>
0: but even even as such, though. So this is this is an, while we're talking stats. Um, so this is two thousand and fifteen data. So maybe a little old. And this is from the Pew Research uh, website they plotted um, people who pray daily so not this church not church membership a different metric I guess so people who pray daily with, with GDP per capita and it's unbelievable how much of a correlation there is between or I guess reverse correlation between wealth and daily prayer um, where it's so the or wealthy pray. The wealthy do not pray. The the poor the poorer countries do.
1: I would kind of expect and hope that. Like if the wealthy were praying and the poor
2: weren't. Well, we know <laughs> who prays and doesn't pray in this group
0: <laughs> by that stat. But but so here's a caveat. The the United States is far and away an outlier, even in twenty fifteen data. And right even yeah. if, so i looked up the because there is a more recent um i guess let's see yeah i think it is from pew no this is from braun research so a different polling firm who has today's number is 45 percent of americans pray daily in 28 or 2020 um even with that data united states is still like a huge outlier in terms of wealthier countries um most of which are in around 20%. So like Canada's about 25, Netherlands is 20, Australia is like 18, you know, uh, anyway, just interesting caveat with, as much as re- America certainly is less religious than it was, um, still kind of uniquely re- uh, religious, at least among wealthy countries.
2: We're the blind leading the blind. <laughs> 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 into Armageddon.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I've I've
1: used I've used the stats to kind of give myself a couple extra minutes to answer your question.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say I'm not letting you off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: If we had to have a speaker, who would it be? Yeah, I mean I I do think when you look at Jerry Falwell's moral majority and what you said earlier Mike about Billy not signing on to that he wasn't legalistic he went he started out at bob jones university which you can google it it's a very legalistic christian school um and he he spent a year there and he left because it was just far too legalistic um so that streak in him existed well before he um kind of rose to his prominence um but it did say in my reading like he always Held an arm's length between him and even the Christian right of the 1970s. And yeah, I, I don't know, no one has nearly the market share that he does. I think every given that you can get your media in the package that you want it, I think everybody, this is true of any sort of ideology or perspective, there's just enough or too many versions of, I don't know, belief or perspective that I don't, I don't think anyone has the narrative, um, of the gospel or perhaps even the respect of so many, um, demographics that, that he had. I don't know if we have anyone to fill his shoes given the nature of discourse and it's probably it's probably not even uh i I don't think it'd be christian i think it'd be like eh, probably can't say the next words i don't know i mean it's probably it's probably obama it's obama it's obama i
3: mean we'd pick barack obama but yeah yeah Um, yeah
1: it's obama and i
3: think so i had
1: a like couple thoughts he'll he'll you know if he had to do it like he wouldn't i doubt he'd i don't know he'd like, actually do a really good job anymore I mean, he he would do a good job but it like
3: i think it wouldn't
1: be would. you wouldn't call it like christian right
3: so, I, hold on. I'm I, sorry. I I, gotta come, oh. he,
1: I think he oh, no, he no, could no. be Christian. I don't think his <laughs> national message would be.
3: But
2: what is President Obama? What I feel like there's jeopardy. You're giving the answer <laughs> I forgot what the question was. If if
1: I there if someone today. had to give the spiritual message to the country. Oh. who who would deliver the spiritual message? Right. I think that's the question.
3: Yeah, we'd pick Barack Obama.
1: And it would be, it would be, it would be
3: Barack Obama for sure. See, I think, I mean, so I'm going to tie up a couple of thoughts I've been thinking as you guys have been speaking, but like, I hope I hope I can tie it together well enough. But like, I do think part of what I liked about the speech is kind of like how he seemed to, I guess he started with the evil question and then moved into the the other stuff. So and we kind of talked about the very beginning, and somebody mentioned, you know, Bishop Barron's style is more of an intellectual, rigorous side. But I've actually heard him speak before on, you know, how suffering is a really hard question. Because it's one thing when you're sitting down with three people having an intellectual question and none of you are suffering. Because then you can actually try to pick at, like, how would a loving God allow this? And you can, you know, get the ph- ph- philosophy and get these different thoughts and ideas but like, that's just not the approach you would ever take to someone who is suffering, because it just wouldn't work. So, like, Billy Graham, I feel like in this instance, had somewhat of a difficult, not task, because, but, like, yeah, it's like a lot of people probably were asking the question, like, how could God allow this to happen, right? Worst terrorist attack in history, almost 3,000 people dead, all these things. But at the same time, like, even though they're asking that question, like, is that the best i guess route to take at the time um so i think he did a good job at acknowledging it and then not dwelling on it if that makes sense but um so yeah i mean when we talked about like who would give it today like he is the first person that came to my mind as far as like for the circles i'm around simply because i feel like he is probably the most trusted you know articulate intelligent voice out there but i mean if this literally happened today, I mean, I would probably. If you said, "Hey, Ross, guess who? Like, put your money on who's going to give the speech?" I mean, I would guess Barack Obama. Um, I mean, his whole message literally hope, right? That like literally was what he ran on to become president of the United States. Um, he, and he saw Bill
2: Graham. <laughs> like, <gonna> <laughs> but I mean,
3: like, he's incredibly articulate. He's very well spoken. Like, agree with him or disagree with him. Like, he's right. He makes us. He, he he can get his point across. Some, I mean sometimes he'd, yeah, okay, I'll stop talking about that, but, like, in this type of setting, I feel like is where he would, you know, do a really good job, but, um, I don't know, I feel like to kind of dive then, a little bit away from that, but, like, into the speech, too, like, with, um, I don't know, like, with Billy Graham, I feel like he kind of, in the setting, I kind of shows it, too, kind of blended or marred or married together, these ideas of like Christianity and, um, Christianity and America, right? So, like, at the time, like we said, we can pull out the stats, blah, 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 but, like, it was just more common, a little more, it was more common then. It was really well-known by everybody, and even, like, the place he's giving the speech. Like, I looked up some stuff on this, this national cathedral. It's Episcopalian Church, but it had... I'm going to look at my numbers here just to, like, kind of talk about, like, the blending of Christianity with America, like, this idea. Um, so, it had... it was the washington national cathedral it's an episcopalian church so like it held monthly services during world war ii it held the state funeral of four different presidents and the memorial service for five others so that means it was involved i mean nine presidents that's huge i mean percentage wise um it was the place of the so after the the day after the inauguration, the day after their inauguration, seven different presidents did their presidential prayer service there. So in a lot of ways, like obviously right, we're the separate church and state, all that stuff. But like in a lot of ways, like this is the church of America in a way. I mean, symbolically in a way. So like I feel like you know the person giving it, the place it was was, I mean I don't want to say like well chosen like it was fake, but like somewhat fitting for such a terrible day if that makes sense um I actually watched and to, again I think why I feel like I kind of want to dive into the hope part of the speech a little bit but I watched a lot of videos of like 9-11 um just day after day of like the planes hitting the towers uh just the people on the streets at the time and even I mean I remember it I mean I wasn't very old but like I remember it I mean we all know a lot about it like um you know we didn't give a lot of context for 9-11 during this podcast because i feel like pretty much everybody knows quite a bit of it um but even like watching the videos which i've probably seen before like i got very upset um like borderline emotional and i got like kind of angry a little bit and um It made me think back a little bit to the two episodes ago when we did jp2 speech in warsaw and like when the people were just so ready for a revolution and we kind of said you know right now just go home and go to bed like that's the best thing to do right now so i felt like that was like an interest a good approach because i mean again somebody who remembers it pretty well but 20 years later like, just watching videos of it got so angry, like, if he had gotten up there and, like, fire and brimstoned it, like, yeah, let's go, like, you know, get behind me, like, I probably would have bought into it just because of the place I was in, and that was literally watching videos on my computer 20 years later, so, like, I can't imagine the sense of a, you know, if I was 30 years old at the time, and, you know, new people in New York City, like, I can't imagine what I would have felt, you know, the days after 9-11, so, in a lot of ways, I think he did a good job of not like toning down the fumes, but maybe better directing our um, our energy and thoughts if that makes sense. I don't
1: know if it stood the test of time like I kind of I don't recall like what he said on 911. I think other speeches probably stick in our memory a little more. Is that fair?
0: What makes you say it didn't stay? Is it just the fact that you don't remember it or are because like I know there's like later parts in the speech where he talks about America being like a resilient nation and we're going to rebuild the country on a firmer foundation. And like, are you saying like that didn't play out or or more or less just like you didn't necessarily recall the speech?
1: Just that like it's like, oh. Um, I think, like, I I do remember, like, the Jack Buck speech that we talked about. Like, we can picture some of the words Bush said the days after. Like, I don't, it's like, oh, did Billy Graham speak on 9-11? I personally didn't easily recall that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I kind of see what you're saying. Like, I mean, in terms of, like, and I think, to be fair, like, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't, like, And maybe I'm wrong, but, like, I'm not hearing this speech as, like, this is the prime time, you know, everybody in America, turn on your radios and listen to what Billy Graham's going to say. Like, I don't feel like it quite had that setting of a speech, if that makes sense either. Um, And, like, I mean, I think with 9-11, at least, I mean, the one that sticks out to me is President Bush's bullhorn speech. Um, That's Yeah, that's what I'm saying. uh, It's, like,
1: the lasting oratory from 9-11 is like
3: let's go get them right he literally i mean yeah i guess to my kind of my point earlier about like how billy graham like maybe it was better for a calming voice because of how we wanted to go so bad you know like um i mean president bush actually said in his bullhorn speech like you know what i i'm gonna misquote it but something to the effect of like you know, I can hear you, the whole world can hear you, pretty soon the people who did this are going to hear you, and you know, people cheer wildly, and it's like that was the opposite of go home and go to bed, that was like, let's go get them, um, which in some ways, yeah, but um, yeah, I just think that's kind of kind of interesting a little bit, just the...
2: <laughs> I'd like <clears throat> to unpack this, uh, we sort of circled around it to some extent. A tragedy like this could have torn our country apart, but instead it has united us. So those perpetrators who took this on to tear us apart, it has worked the other way. It has backlashed. We are more united than ever before. I think this was exemplified in a very moving way than when the members of our Congress stood shoulder to shoulder and sang God bless America. So I made the side comment there to that segment. Oh, but did we tear ourselves apart eventually, indirectly, because of these events? And sort of how I'm, like, thinking about that is that, yeah, obviously, clearly, you know, because we're old enough to remember. Yeah, country was definitely very unified um, in the, you know, probably three years especially following this. Lots of Old Navy. You guys remember the Old Navy t-shirts like American Flag and Blazing on the Front? I mean, it was like, you were you were a nerd if you didn't have one of those. Um, you know, the National Anthem, Constant. Uh, lots of country songs. I'm sure whatever other music people listen to, you know, there was just this very explicitly patriotic sort of language and tone to it. And... And then we obviously went to war, first in Afghanistan, and then Iraq. And it's as if and I think we actually sort of had a similar conversation with this on our lost episode from Jack Buck. Cost fourteen ninety nine. Um
3: I thought you meant our lost episode about Malala. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you can buy the whole pack of lost episodes for nineteen <laughs> ninety nine. <laughs> uh or each one, fourteen ninety nine. And it's as if like, imagine if World War, I think this metaphorically, imagine if World War II did not have an outcome where the enemy or the, um, but what the heck was Hitler and Mussolini and the Japanese guy called?
3: The Axis powers?
2: axis imagine if the axis had not been so completely and clearly taken down right because i feel like in a very similar way like the united states came together in the midst of world war ii like oh man yeah we're gonna fight this enemy and that's gonna be it and we fought the enemy and we won clear end of story but with and so in 2001 we came together we saw the enemy like yeah we're gonna get them and you know you can argue ahead to what extent we were successful with respect to afghanistan at least um, we killed bin laden like that's definitely a significant success there um but there's so many other extenuating factors with respect to that war with respect to just our culture itself Did, so the question I'm sort of posing there in my comment is, did the terrorists actually win? Whether or not they expected it this way or not, but uh, one can definitely argue whether the country is as connected as it was in 2001. Um, And is it more disconnected precisely because 2001 did not have a satisfying anti-climax if that makes sense
1: the anti-climax was probably part of it i mean it just took so much money and effort for you know especially and given the last two months like seemingly little result that first we lost our innocence then we lost our trust and now we're here
0: i wonder if yeah, I mean, obviously you can't tell, but, like, I wonder if there wasn't another trajectory. Like, if, if there weren't parallel trajectories kind of pointing America to where it is. So, and I think we alluded to part of it earlier, we just with the loss of religiosity, I think is one kind of parallel um trajectory towards I think a very splintered America and I think that's maybe one manifestation of like a lot of things and I I think I mentioned this on our camping trip was the the book Bowling Alone and basically the the author uh, I forget his name at the moment just kind of documenting all of these sorts of um, just like cultural anomalies that were happening just basically in the second half of the 21st century, um, or 20th century, I guess. But uh, where people are just—they're leaving their churches. They're not joining like clubs and organizations, like you know, Knights of Columbus or Lions Club or whatever. Um, there's like decreased membership in professional organizations as well as even just like kind of more um, like local social things like bowling nights or card game nights or whatever. And he highlights a variety of like cultural forces like individualism, um, uh, just people going to college and the kind of the expectation of college and how that's kind of changed how we do things, but also television like as like a major, Social thing that kind of took us out of this social interactive world and into the more isolated world. So do I, I don't know. I mean, I I can certainly see how like a messy resolution or lack of resolution um, could have like certainly like makes things worse. I don't know that it's the only thing that like is pointing America to, like, kind of this very disintegrated um, place it's in.
1: Definitely the pivot point. I mean, yeah, we're almost exactly 20 years, two decades later, and you would define the starting point of the 21st century as 9-11 for sure, and the reactions that, unfolded in the light of that on pretty much everyone's conscience
2: yeah there was um, back you know because obviously this past year was uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and on my uh, you know kind of the significant St. Louis radio station KMOX they did a really interesting radio documentary Called the day before, yeah, yeah, and oh, how, what do you how did do you how you know about this? No, I'm just
1: agreeing that I'm interested in hearing the story. So oh, okay. go ahead, <laughs>
2: okay. And they it was mostly playing clips, you know, with a little bit of voiceover from news um, on September 10th. It was just, and there was at some point during the documentary. Maybe it was just the title of it. They said September 10th, 2001, the last normal day. And I was like, gosh, even though that was, even though two thirds of my life has taken place post this quote normal day, more than that, if you, substantially more than that, if you only count my sentient years, um, it's like, it's crazy that that sentence makes sense to me um that yeah well yeah and i share i shared that with i think maybe my mom and a brother as well who obviously a little bit older that you're like yeah man yeah that's yeah crazy huh
3: i feel like it's gonna change wins just a little bit um before we kind of get into our closing thoughts or whatever here but like i feel like like, here in, kind of, America before and after, and, like, I don't know, not that there's, like, an explicit question here, but, like, I don't know if I would say the terrorists won in the sense that, like, a lot of the disunity and things like that, I feel like there's other, so many, like, other factors feeding into it. It's, like, the, I mean, honestly, like, I'm thinking of, like, social media, because, like, I mean, we had, like, and again, so obviously this is incredibly oversimplified and not they're not the exact same in any means, but like war happened or you know 9/11 happens immediately after, there I don't know the numbers, Steve can look them up for us, but I'm comfortable saying a very high percentage of Americans were very for war at the time. And then obviously now it's like right, probably a super popular topic among some 22-year-old that knows everything about how stupid it was to go to war, right? And like what hit me was when actually Landon and I, I believe, um, many years ago visited the Lyndon Johnson Museum. No, wait, was that a no wait, I did that with my family. We did Bill Clinton. Either way, I've been his I've been to the Lyndon John, the, the Johnson's uh, presidential museum and there's like interesting facts. And again, I don't remember the specifics, but like in the very beginning years, like a huge percentage of people were very for the Vietnam War. And then, right, looking back, it's like, oh, how stupid were we to do this, blah, blah blah. So, like, I feel like, like, I don't know. In a sense, there's somewhat of a similarity in like the kind of hindsight's 2020, and like that didn't rip us apart necessarily. Um, but so I don't know. I feel like the like the modern cultural stuff. I just feel like there's other things that might have more of an impact on like how the world's currently operating. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. But it's maybe, like, a, uh, it's a fair critique. Like, you
3: should be pretty critical of war, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you should be critical of, like, war in general, yes.
2: <laughs> maybe it'd be sort of fun. Go ahead, Mike. Maybe it's sort of fun to take us towards the closing direction. Um, with honing in on some anecdotes from how Billy Graham touched one person's life in particular. Add, add some humanity to Billy Graham. Do it. Okay, so um, I was tasked with researching a refreshing memory on Billy Graham's impact on the great runner... And World War Two POW Louis Zamperini made Phil famous in the film and book Unbroken. Um, you guys familiar with Louis Zamperini before today? Mm-hmm. In Unbroken, yeah, excellent book.
0: Yep.
3: Way to try to sound smart by not saying excellent movie.
0: I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean,
3: <laughs> yeah, excellent book. I agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, read the book uh, a couple of times. Very, very good.
0: Only a couple and, like,
2: oh. yeah, <laughs> in Latin both times because I feel like you really there's just certain words you just don't translate. You know, you hate a bad translation. <laughs> um, <laughs> so really, in brief, to catch the reader up because Bill Graham doesn't really enter into Zamperini's life until post POW. Um, zamparini to ruin the ending uh gets out of being a pow um after having been a prisoner of war for something like crazy um well i think it was like two and a half years and this was in the japanese prisoner camp so beaten terribly by a carrot an individual named the bird nicknamed the bird and so zamparini had really difficult post-traumatic stress syndrome And the only way that it was uh, obvious to him to resolve this was through drinking. And he actually hatched plans to go to Japan and find the bird and murder him. As crazy as that sounds. Um, But that kind of gives you a sense of the headspace that Zamperini was in. And meanwhile, he was newly married to a woman named Cynthia. And they were going to get divorced because of his alcoholism and, you know, all the other crap that was going on in his life because of his PTSD. And Billy Graham was there in California extremely early in his um, traveling preaching. And Cynthia went to go here billy graham speak at one of these events and she was completely moved she came home and told louie that i'm not going to divorce you because of what i heard today and louie's like all you know he's obviously glad but then she explains like oh i i feel this way because i heard this guy speak about faith and that's why louie didn't like that and Cynthia tried convincing him, like you have to go, you have to go. So Louis eventually went, and went once, not super successful, uh, not particularly touching. Thought it was sort of fake, I guess. Um, but then she convinced him to go one more time, and Louis finally relented and said that, fine, but we're going to leave. Once he says, um, let's see here. Um, it's something like everybody every head bowed, every eye closed. Whenever Billy Graham said that, because that was like his his shtick, um, they were gonna leave. All right. So Louie Billy Graham says this, and Billy Graham apparently saw them leaving, and Billy Graham says, Nobody leaving. You can leave while I'm preaching, but not now. Everybody's still in quiet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. He asked the faithful to come forward. But Louie tries to get out of there as fast as he can. He ignores Billy Graham. But he remembers this moment when he was on the raft. and Because he spent 40 days on a raft in the Pacific, batting away sharks and catching dead fish. Um... But he remembered this moment that he had sitting out there on that raft, starving. And he said to God in that particular moment, If you will save me, I will serve you forever. So he remembered that in a new profound way because of that moment with Billy Graham. And that was it. He uh, he went home. He dumped all of his alcohol down the rain. His cigarettes. He had some porn that was stashed away there through it all so if anyone listening has any of those things well you can keep the alcohol in moderation but (laughs) burn burn that porn don't need that no moderation there um and laura hillenbrand writes in the morning he woke feeling cleansed for the first time in five years the bird hadn't come into his dreams the bird would never come again that morning he believed he was a new creation Softly he wept. So, yeah, he became a devoted, devoted Christian. After that, he became a speaker, speaking about his experiences um, with a you know particular faith tone to that. Tried meeting the bird back in Japan because the bird continued living until two thousand three or two thousand five, but he um, he refused. So, yeah, pretty pretty compelling and moving way. You know, if you guys saw the film Unbroken, I don't think that they addressed his. Well, they did in the sequel, which was not made by Angelina Jolie. Um, Yeah, I don't. I don't remember what happened at the end of the film with Jolie because I felt like it was so shortened that I wasn't a big fan
3: of it. Anyone, do you remember what happened in the movie? Yeah, I, I don't recall how it I don't remember the ending. I do remember that they just left all that out though.
2: Yeah, the sequel actually looked all right. I mean, it looked like there was there was one or two legit actors in it. So, anyway, yeah, that's uh how Bill Graham had a particular effect on on one guy's life. So,
3: I have an interesting it, qu- oops, no, you yeah. go.
2: Oh no, no, it was just a
3: I have an interesting question then, and and tell me if, Matt, you have a better closing question since it's your episode, but do you guys feel, and not like on the theoretical level, but like in your own experience, do you feel like suffering has, so like, like, Louis Zambrini had the alcoholism, obviously 9-11, really bad, like, do you feel like suffering has tended to make you question God more, or draw you somehow closer to God?
0: I do not have a better question. We'll end with that.
1: Say one more time.
3: Uh, Do you feel like in your personal experience, has suffering made you question God's existence or just God himself, or has it somehow like drawn you closer to God?
2: Yeah, my answer comes pretty quickly to my mind. Uh, For me, it's definitely both. Um, and you know, for there, I mean, there's obviously a lot of layers and levels to that certain aspects of that is obvious. Um, so I won't comment on that, but man, I guess, you know, specific, the most specific point saying to doubt him, you know, these guys have heard it before. For sure a lot of my close friends have um, the most poignant experience of suffering in my life was seeing uh, my grandpa the um, de- degrade through dementia induced by his smoking as I understand it which effectively looked like Alzheimer's and Man, seeing that suffering that not only he experienced, but our whole family, you know, through all the different ways that one can imagine that inflicting suffering. And that was really hard because, you know, it's like his, his mind, you know, wasn't present in a way that made it obvious that there was any obvious like redemptive nature to that. Right? It just you know it was there. Uh there for us to, you know, experience and be a part of. But as I was sharing with these guys uh on our camping trip, um I sort of related this experience on this retreat talk that I wrote but didn't give because the retreat didn't happen. Uh and it was explaining how in Christ's suffering on the cross, I think it's just, man, if it's if it's made up, it's the most genius made up story in history. Because if jesus would have just been this guy who came with these neat tidy packaged answers to all of life mis all of life's mysteries specifically like with suffering i don't think that i mean people would believe it i suppose in a sense because like hey these are great answers coming from god but it wouldn't it wouldn't stick. I feel like it wouldn't get to the guts of being human where you have these questions about suffering, but nothing you need. The only way to answer suffering is to suffer with someone. Right. And the most powerful memories of my grandpa's suffering from dementia. Were those moments with someone else whether it was with my grandpa or my grandma or my mom, those are the things that stick with me and antithetically, those are the things that give me faith that um, and I, I, I that corresponds in my mind and heart to Christ being there at accompanying us in some way because yeah I mean, No one in his family had Alzheimer's, I know, but he did know suffering, both on the cross and also just being human, you know, people letting him down, Judas laying him down, Peter laying him down, and all those thousand other ways he was let down in the first 33 years of his life, big or small, so yeah, I I think that's suffering makes me believe in God and
0: not believe in God. certainly had doubts about things usually more involving um suffering that like I've witnessed in other people who are close to me but um I don't know I guess for me it's more um I would say it's definitely brought me closer more than it's ever made me seriously doubt um God's existence um But it's usually more, I mean, yeah, I guess usually better understood after the fact or after I find myself capable of something that I didn't know at the time or, um, you know, kind of acquire a new perspective because of that suffering. So that's kind of, I guess that's my answer.
1: Yeah, I think the suffering provides or... You know where doubts and questions come in. Like usually, the the only clear answer, hope from the suffering, draws you closer to God. But while you're in it and trying to overcome it yourself, like seems like there's no other way out, um, and therefore closer.
3: I would say for myself, I mean, I think like most people probably like, yeah, you're kind of, or I'm have had the moments of like, oh my gosh, like how could God let this happen and kind of struggle with that. But like, I feel like I, it, like to try to explain it, like I have, I feel like I have those moments more on things that are kind of like fleeting and seem like in the grand scheme of thing, like lesser problems almost. Um, and again, just kind of, I feel like my experience of that is, um, I'm trying to think of an example of a uh, like slightly <laughs> bigger than mosquitoes. I've never questioned God for that, but like, uh, I don't know, something went wrong.
2: When, or... when we go camping, Ross is just like crying because of the mosquitoes. He's just like shaking his fists at the
3: sky. It's really pitiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't have one. Maybe something difficult with parenting or something like that. That's like, yeah, it's hard. Like, it's suffering. But, like, then I think about, um, I don't know, and I don't feel like I've ever suffered terribly in my life. You know, thanks be to God. But, um, like, in other times when I have suffered maybe more. Like, I, I, we went through a rough time. Like, my grandmother died um, from COVID last November, and it was the middle of COVID. So, like, it was just hard because the hospitals weren't allowing visitors so i was one of two family members that could actually see her because i just happened to work at the hospital so just like a lot of stuff kind of fell on me through all of that and it was just hard for everybody um and like in moments like that i don't feel like i questioned it though which i just find is interesting because like i feel like i don't know i feel like sometimes in those bigger moments maybe i got some more of that peace or closure that i was looking for um to help kind of get me through but yeah. Can
2: you explain a little more how Thane's quote, fell on you in
3: that? Uh, yeah, um I mean, just so my grandmother had a stroke about a year before, a pretty large stroke about a year before she passed away. So just, and I was, just happened to be a physical therapist who works with people who have had strokes. Um, so I just felt like I was kind of more attuned to, like, what was going on. And even in like just kind of explaining to my family, like this is probably how it's going to go. And yes, like we want to be very hopeful, but like realistically, this is this is what's going to happen right now. And it was just kind of hard to kind of be like, yep, you want to be kind of hopeful and just hope for the best, but also like on paper, I know this. I you just kind of know how it's going to go. And then um, the last week or two of her life, she just she had had she came to the hospital with actually another stroke, and then she was found positive for COVID. So the hospital is not allowing visitors at the time. So just I was trying to go by most days, go into the right, put all the gear on, and go into the room to spend time with her. You know, try to talk to her even though she's somewhat incoherent. Um, just I don't know, just things like that that you know. I feel like normally you know would be more of the the. I don't want to say responsibility like it's a chore, but like something that more like you know you do for a parent. You know. Um, so just things like that. And then, you know, uh, me and my cousin's actually a physician. So the two of us went in one he was the other person in the family. They got to kind of see her. So like we would go in and we FaceTimed the rest of the family, like from her room just mm-hmm. so they could see her. So just like things like that, you know? Um, but yeah. I don't know. So, and, but in, like those type of situations of more, I feel like a little more real suffering, um, which maybe that's the difference. I mean, you know, it wasn't just that I feel like that was more of a suffering, not just a, the other situations I described, you know, oh, something isn't going my way right now. You know, how can this be happening? But yeah.
0: All right. Well, this was episode number three in our Speeches on God series. Episode number four, or what is it, 18? 18. Row? 18. Uh, will be coming out shortly in a few short weeks and who will we be hearing from for the next speech?
1: I've Do got it. I've got so we it. Know.
3: We'll be hearing from Landon.
0: <laughs> Landon <McKinsell. laughs> we'll
2: be This podcast doesn't just discuss history, it makes history. <laughs>